Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Hannah Murphy, our financial correspondent, Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, and on a trip from Scandinavia, we have Richard Milne, our Scandinavia correspondent. This week, we'll be taking a look at MasterCard as it prepares for uh, innovation in future. A look also at HSBC as it struggles with its investment banking advisory business. And finally, yet more news about the money laundering scandal at Danske Bank. First, though, to MasterCard. And last week, MasterCard and Visa and a clutch of big banks proposed a $6.2 billion settlement with merchants over a long-running fees dispute. Well, when we spoke to MasterCard's chief financial officer, Martina Hunt-Majon, she refused to talk about that on tape. But she did talk to our financial correspondent, Hannah Murphy, about a clutch of other interesting topics. First, Hannah asked her about cybersecurity and exactly what MasterCard was doing to deal with the risks that were showing up in the payment system. We have actually used a number of fraud products that we have internally. And over the last many years, we actually figured out how to change those fraud products so that the other stakeholders in the payments industry could use it. And then we built on top of it, including making a number of acquisitions. There's very significant effort that you have to invest in your technology, right? The technology has to be built in a certain way that can withstand the attacks that you're getting from cybersecurity criminals But even more important, you need to have fantastic resources in the company. So these are people who have a huge amount of skill set, education, background in this particular space. And in fact, you know, today I would suggest to you that we don't have enough people whom you can hire in this space. And there are significant efforts going on to figure out how we can get the kids of the future to be going into these kind of spaces and hopefully be hired by companies like us. So, Hannah, um, what did you make of that comment? She's obviously bigging up how well MasterCard is prepared for cybersecurity, but we've seen a lot of outages, actually a a big outage at their arch-rival Visa a few weeks ago, and also other payment systems. Did she sound, from what uh, she said to you, as if you know they're confident that this could never happen to them and that this is something that they're on top of in the way others aren't? What struck me was the point around talent that she made, that they're really trying to race to stay ahead of hackers and so hiring in some big names. So Ron Green, their chief information security officer, former US special agent with the Secret Service. Um, They've also hired from Interpol. It signals that there's a little bit of nervousness around this issue. 
nervousness, but as you say, it probably is a bit of a war for <laughs> getting the right people in who are going to stay ahead of the curve. Exactly, exactly. The other interesting uh, point that she made was around data analytics and the kind of work that MasterCard is doing. While they won't breach client confidences, they are very keen to exploit the commercial opportunity of aggregating data anonymously and trying to exploit that in terms of what their merchants might want to know and what banks might want to know about spending patterns. We um, don't see a lot of the data from a consumer perspective because we don't see, when you do a transaction with your card where there's a 16-digit number on it, we don't see your name we don't see your address, we don't see your email, we don't see your phone number. That's your bank's data. We will never get that kind of data. But what we do is we know what you're doing on your 16-digit card number at which merchant you're purchasing something and what the total amount is. We, by the way, don't know what you're all purchasing, what the total amount is at which time of the day and at which day. What we do is... We basically anonymize your card, your 16-digit number. We that, that's taken away. We cannot link back to it the way that we're doing it. It's all GDPR compliant at this point in time. Um, and then we aggregate your data in such a way that the data could never be put back to you, so that the data could never be identified back to you yourself. And then with this aggregated data, actually the banks and the merchant community are able and capable to figure out what they should do from a business point of view. So I give you an example. If you're dealing with a particular, let's say a supermarket, the supermarket knows if you have their loyalty product or if you have a card issued from them, what you do in their store. But they really don't know when you leave their store or before you come to their store what you're doing outside of it. So when they get that aggregated data from us for what a whole population of consumers might be doing before you go to that supermarket or after you leave that supermarket, that might allow them to figure out what they should be doing in the store for you to potentially buy more from them rather than from other shops around them. So, Hannah, what do you make of all of that? It sounds slightly big brotherish, but what's your view? If you look at MasterCard, its shares have jumped more than 50% recently. But you've got regulations like open banking and new technology making it easier to bypass card providers' networks and transfer money more directly between banks. So groups like MasterCard are trying to diversify into new areas. And obviously, data analytics is one of those it's a little more tricky than it might immediately appear, particularly because of new data protection rules, so the GDPR compliance rules, which came in earlier this year. So they've actually had to set up a trust in Dublin with IBM to manage and analyse and anonymise customer data and keep it very strictly away from the main business. Um, but it sounds like it's, it's something they're sort of investing in in future. It'll be very interesting to see how that uh, pans out. A, a final word on that, uh, where we started, this fees dispute with merchants. They didn't want to go on tape on that. Did they say anything kind of behind the scenes? Or what impression do you get as to how seriously uh, this is affecting their business? 
So I think their argument was that this was old news. It's a revision of a 2012 settlement. MasterCard is to pay an extra $108 million um, as part of this latest settlement. But actually, the issue that plaintiffs have put forward around what rules the card networks can and cannot impose on merchants is still very much live. So the legality of these rules are actually going to be discussed properly in court now that the monetary settlement has been agreed. There's a bit of a backlash gaining traction. So recently, um, one of my colleagues, Nick McGaw, wrote about a US supermarket chain Kroger banning Visa credit cards in some stores recently because of some of the worries about potential anti-competitive practices. Yeah, it is a live topic, obviously, fees, and all the more so given the greater competitiveness in the in the marketplace with new style payments companies. Uh, we'll watch this very closely. Hannah, okay. thank you very much. Well, let's move on to our second topic and a look at HSBC, which over the past week or so has really been having a bit of a crisis of confidence in its advisory banking business. Stephen, you, along with others, have been writing quite a lot about this. There was a memo that triggered this whole story. It revealed a a kind of unease within the bank about how well they're doing or how badly they're doing in this business. Tell us us a bit more about it. Well, so this memo was sent um, towards the end of last month and has come up uh, more recently and and has been doing the rounds. It's... um, Allegedly from a group of anonymous bankers who are very concerned about the direction HSBC is going. They sent this to the chairman, Mark Tucker, who's relatively new, and and a long-serving insider who's just risen to CEO, John Flint. And the memo is entitled Rewards for Persistent Failure. So it starts off quite punchy. And basically what it is is a seven-page critique of everything that's been happening over the last 10 to 20 years, but more specifically in the last 18 months at HSBC's investment bank. Basically, they're accusing them of a lack of strategy and not taking advantage of the enormous size of HSBC, its balance sheet, its global network, its uh, relatively stable capital levels, ability to pay bankers, and turn this into a successful investment banking franchise to rival, you know, the likes of JP Morgan or even Barclays um, uh, closer to home in London. Now, um, we can read to give you a taste, a flavor of of, of the, the tone of the memo. We can read a bit. So this is just from the first page. Uh, We are writing because of the utter failure of the leadership in the division where we work and which we care about. Our perspective is principally banking, but much of what we say applies to markets, so that's the trading side as well. The division's leadership has year on year utterly failed to create a successful strategy, which we even have a chance of succeeding. We are entirely fed up and demoralised and have no confidence at all in the existing leadership. Now, they say the memo is whistleblowing on incompetence, and this is being taken seriously by the board because it came through the appropriate whistleblowing channels. And... um, they pick out one metric. They say HSBC is ranked 42nd in global M&A. That's the revenue they generate from advising clients on taking over other companies. So he said our revenues would shame a regional solicitor's firm, let alone an investment bank. So you can see they're really going for the jugular uh, with what they're saying here. It's pretty damning stuff, isn't it? Um, just to pick up on that stat, they are, of course, by several measures, one of the biggest banks in the world, market capitalization, asset base. It's quite extraordinary that they should be so lowly ranked in the M&A league tables, isn't it? It, it is extraordinary. In a sense, HSBC makes its money through facilitating trade, through helping companies bank themselves around the world, and, and they never have been a Goldman Sachs-style M&A powerhouse. But what this memo hits on is several failed attempts to become one. Now, it centres largely around two people, a guy called Matthew Westerman, who they brought in from Goldman Sachs, 
about two years ago, and he lasted only 18 months before essentially being kicked out for what they said was a culture clash. I mean, the guy was rude. He was aggressive, you know, journalists and, and internally, you know, we all experienced it alike. But he did actually identify some key problems and, and he was shunted out by the, the current guy who's still in charge, his co-head of banking, Robin Phillips, who, who features in a very unflattering light in the memo. And then another guy who they brought across a number of years ago called John Staczynski known as studs, who tried to do the same thing. He tried to overhaul the division, inject more competition, and, and essentially was rejected by the HSBC uh, as this kind of foreign body. Now, a lot of people during the course of our reporting to this article compared HSBC to the civil service or the, you know, the British diplomacy corps, you know. You join straight out of university, you'll have several foreign postings around the world, you never leave, you have a good, comfortable and, and largely, you know, safe career. You're not, you're not going to get fired if you have one bad year. And several attempts to overhaul this and try and make more money from their global network have just faltered and failed. And, and this memo seems to be a culmination of years of frustration experienced by people that have worked there, perhaps since university, and who presumably won't be working there for that much longer. It's quite interesting timing, isn't it, for this uh, memo to emerge or to have been written because we are in a massive M&A boom. On Tuesday, we, we led our paper with a $50 billion clutch of deals in the US and it's pretty indicative of nervousness around this space that not only have we had this HSBC memo, but there's also been a significant change at the top of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch's leadership on the investment banking side. Presumably concern there that they're missing out on um, some of the big deals that maybe they should be on. Exactly. Their head of investment banking and, and a very important man in their M&A team, Christian Meissner, has retired and will step down at the end of the year. Now, Bank of America fell from second in global investment banking advice to fifth this year. Their revenues fell by, I think, around a third, whereas JP Morgan's increased by about a third. And there was a lot of dissatisfaction right from the top at Bank of America that they had a similar platform. They are paying these people similar amounts to JP Morgan, yet they weren't getting the same results. So we can really see that people are really focusing in now in this more capital-constrained, harsh regulatory environment. And if something's not working... You know, either there's going to be change coming down from the top or in HSBC's case, change demanded from the bottom. Well, we'll see whether HSBC managed to hike itself up from 42nd in the league tables or not. But uh, for now, thanks very much, Stephen. So let's move on to our final topic for the day, an update on Danske Bank and what is rapidly becoming the biggest money laundering scandal the world has ever seen. We're joined by Caroline Binham and Richard Milne. Uh, welcome, both of you. Let me start with you, Caroline. You uh, just wrote a really interesting deep dive on the UK angle on this scandal and the use of partnership structures here, which many people believe is not just specific to Danska, but is actually a part of a far broader money laundering scandal that's beneath the surface in the UK. Yeah, that's right. So I think it's long been known that UK limited partnerships, and in that we would include LRPs and also Scottish uh, limited partnerships, have been used in pretty much every big money laundering scandal you can think of. And Danska's no exception. After Russia, UK clients by geography were the second largest cohort of Danske's Estonian branch, which is the, the branch that's at the centre of this money laundering scandal. We know that the UK National Crime Agency is looking at one of the 1,100 UK LLPs that 
was tied to Dansky. We don't know exactly uh, who is behind that LLP. And I should add that um, that's true of all of these UK LLPs and SLPs that we talk about generally in these scandals. They're nominally British, but at the end of the day, they could be owned by absolutely anyone. And because of the layers of ownership that go on, one anonymous company owns another and you see them in various tax havens around the world. It's just very hard to penetrate as to who actually is behind these accounts. Let me turn to Richard. You've just flown in uh, after having done a lot of reporting on the ground on Danske. Where does this go from here, do you think, Richard? I think it goes in many directions. I think the report, there's so many unanswered questions about it. I think one of the biggest ones Caroline just touched on there, the the report um, from Danske has no view on where this money came from or where it goes. And Danske is obviously just one link in probably a rather long chain here. I think there's a lot of questions about that. I, I think there's just questions at every single level. There's questions about Danske's corporate governance, about its board. Danske needs a new chief executive as well. Um, yeah, that... because since we last reported on this, uh, Thomas Borgen, the, the chief exec, has resigned. Uh, I said he's resigning. He's still in position. And he headed, of course, the international operations when this Estonian uh, scandal was, was going on. I mean, the scandal went on for nine years. He does about three years as head of international banking which includes Estonia and he does about three years as as CEO so there's questions about his replacement I think there's big questions of each individual regulator the Danish and Estonian regulators as anybody that follows money laundering will know there's enormous questions about the European framework of regulation and this division of responsibilities does that work does Europe need a central anti-money laundering body because I think what some people People will say not to defend Danske, but that it's about a lot more than Danske. And it also, if you close down the kind of money laundering that went through Danske, where does it go? Does it go to Cyprus or Malta, as some people look at, or where does it go? And a final point, there's the US that is probably the elephant in the room. Danske could be hit by an enormous fine. Yes, they do have a record of coming down hard on money launderers. Just a quick postscript there. Um, we also reported in the last day or so that Deutsche Bank, which of course was a correspondent bank of Danske's in this whole affair before they cut off that relationship a few years ago, has been admonished by the German regulator Baffin uh, over money laundering failings. So that's another strand that we need to follow. Well, that's it for this week. Um, all that's left for me to do is to thank Hannah, Stephen, Caroline and Richard, and also our guest, who was the Chief Financial Officer of MasterCard, Martina Hunt-Majon. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Martin Staber. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.